the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this third episode in our Haunted Circus miniseries. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Want to thank all the people who've joined us in the spectacular crew. We want to welcome Hannah, Tammy with just an MI, Michelle with two L's, and Jenna. Welcome to the crew, guys. And I just want to send this out to those of you who are listening. I know we have a lot of new listeners because we've had a huge bump in downloads lately. Which is fantastic. Thank you for that. Yes. Please join us on Facebook at the Spooktacular Crew. It's a great place to escape the politics and all the other news about COVID-19. We just have a lot of fun in there and we're a big happy family. Definitely. And it is a close group, so you don't have to worry if you're concerned friends or family are going to look at your posts in our freaky little family, our spooky little family. It's closed, so nobody will be seeing that other than other crew members. So Absolutely. So please <laughs> come and join us. It's a us. nice, safe environment. On this episode, we're going to be talking about the Ringling Brothers and specifically zooming in to where they started it all. And this is up in Wisconsin. And the eldest, who really was the one who got the whole Ringling Brothers circus going, made this his home. He has a mansion there that still is standing. It is now co-owned by some former people in the circus and a businessman. You are going to hear from all three of them on this episode, and they're going to tell you some of their true ghost stories of experiences that they have had at this house. It's going to be amazing. It is. They have some great stories. I interviewed all of them for well over an hour each, and so we have a lot of bonus material that we're going to throw in to our next bonus cast, which is available to anybody at the $2 and above level, and uh, so be expecting that on the first Monday in April. Some extra stuff here, including little JoJo. He's so cute. <laughs> and yes, you've had an awful lot of extra editing with all the long interviews, but so much amazing information. All right, Kelly, are you ready to go to Baraboo? Ready and waiting. Baraboo, Wisconsin was home for the Ringling family, and it would be the winter quarters for the circus that the Ringling Brothers would found. The Ringling Brothers Circus would start a basic dog and pony show and grow into the most famous circus in the world. The eldest brother that led the family down this path was Albert, and he built this gorgeous mansion in Baraboo that is now a museum, bed and breakfast, and brewery. The mansion is not only home to some former members of the circus, but there are reputedly several ghosts here. Join us as we explore the remnants of the circus still in Baraboo and the Al Ringling Mansion as we are joined by the current owners of the mansion, Joe and Carmen Colosa and Don Horowitz.
August Friedrich Rungling was a German immigrant. He and his wife, Marie Salome Juliard, decided to Americanize their name to Ringling, and they had eight children. Albert, born in 1952, Augustus, born in 1852, Otto, born in 1858, Alfred was born in 1861, Charles was born in 1863, John was born in 1866, Henry in 1869, and the sole girl, Ida, was born in 1874, the baby. I think they just kept trying until they had that girl. (laughs) I'm thinking the same thing. Marie was like, I'm going to have that girl. The Ringlings had come from Germany to Canada, then moved down to Milwaukee and on to Chicago, and then finally to Baraboo, Wisconsin. August worked as a saddler, but eventually had to leave Baraboo after the hop crash and relocated to McGregor, Iowa. It would be here that the Ringling children would see their first circus as it unloaded from a steamboat at the McGregor, Iowa docks. They were immediately enthralled. At least five of the brothers were. (laughs) And so what exactly was the hops crash? Well, do you want to go down that little rabbit hole really quick? You jump first. Okay. Hello? Hello? Yes, I'm down here in the rabbit hole and I've brought you with me. So I found this blog called seeingthewoods.org. And this is produced by the Rachel Carson Center for Environment and Society. And I found this blog post called Picking Hops in 19th Century Wisconsin, and I'll put a link in our show notes. But they'd found this woman's diary that was talking about how she'd go out and pick all these hops. And this was something that was a real cash crop in Wisconsin were hops. And obviously we know there's a lot of beer that comes out of this (laughs) area. And I was figuring it might be related to something along those lines. So, of course, that's really cool with us. So let me just read directly here from the blog. White settlers like Muir and Seymour entered and radically altered the existing ecology of a landscape shaped by Ho-Chunk and other Native American communities engaged in agriculture, controlled burning, and the active tending of plant and animal habitats. Hops followed earlier eras of white settler planting that used wheat and other annuals to turn the oak savannas and alder swamps of the place currently known as Wisconsin into land producing both subsistence and cash crops. Wisconsin hops boomed in the 1860s and busted in 1868 but some farmers weathered the crash and continued farming considerable quantities. In 1869, Wisconsin grew 4.6 million pounds of hops, second only in the U.S. to New York State. Wow. So I'm thinking that the hop bust is what we're talking about here in 1868. And even though August was a saddler, he must have had some kind of either investment or farming that he was doing with hops, some kind of connection there. And so when it busted, he had to go somewhere else. Gotcha. That's just me assuming that I don't know for sure. (laughs) Okay, duly noted. All right, let's climb out of this rabbit hole. The boys would host circus parades and put on their performances for the local children, charging a pin for admission and then moving up to toys and trinkets, then to a penny, and finally they moved up to five cents. These boys were some real entrepreneurs. They certainly were. They didn't think that they could get people to pay them money for their little show. So this is why they started off with just pin and then maybe a toy. When they charged for a penny, they were like, hey, we could get a penny. You think we could get a nickel? (laughs) And when they could get a nickel, they're like, hey. (laughs) Cha-ching, (laughs) cha-ching. They had so much success with this that they dreamed of having their own real circus one day. The brothers all played musical instruments and started hosting a show called Ringling Brothers Classic and Comic Concert Company, an entertainment of mirth and music. They would play music, sing, dance, juggle, and do comedic sketches. The money they earned from this gave them enough to start their circus, and they bought into the Yankee Robinson Circus. Which we heard about in episode number one from Virginia and Debbie. We did. They opened their first circus show in Baraboo on May 19, 1884, with 600 people in attendance. Robinson passed away before the circus season was over. 
The ringlings continued on and added horses, animals, and performers. Henry, Gus, and Ida were not in the circus business, but Henry and Gus eventually joined and the circus changed its name to Ringling Brothers United Monster Show's Great Double Circus, Royal European Menagerie, Museum, Caravan, and Congress of Trained Animals. Whew. <laughs> That's a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, I, they wanted to get it all in there so you knew everything they were doing. Each Ringling Brother had a specialty with the circus. Al was the boss of sorts, hiring performers and leading them in rehearsals and planning the show. He also was the equestrian director. Everybody called him Uncle Al. Otto took care of the bookkeeping. Charles produced the show. John supervised the transporting of the circus. And Henry attended each performance. As the Ringlings got more popular, they found themselves in competition with, of all people, Barnum and Bailey. And the two circuses agreed to divide the U.S. so as not to compete head-to-head. The Ringlings changed the name of their circus several times and added the John Robinson Show to their circus in 1898. In 1904, they bought a partial interest in the Fourpaw and Sells Brothers Circus and bought it out entirely in 1906. And then they captured the big one, the Barnum and Bailey Greatest Show on Earth, in 1907 after James Bailey died. They would manage each circus separately until World War I, kept audience attendance down, and many of their workers and performers went to fight in the war. The two combined for good, and John would add the American Circus Corporation in 1929. As we talked about in episode one, the Ringling family eventually sold the circus to the Feld family in 1967. Baraboo, Wisconsin had been the winter quarters for the Ringling Brothers Circus for 34 years. The winter weather would prove to be harsh for the animals, and they moved south to Florida in 1918. But Baraboo would still be rooted in the circus. The Circus World Museum is here now and features memorabilia from the golden age of the circus, like clown props, circus posters, and sideshow banners, flyers, 19th and 20th century circus wagons, and much more. The museum was founded by the Gallmer family, who were cousins of the Ringlings, and the Ringlings' attorney, John M. Kelly. They incorporated the museum in 1954 and officially opened on July 1, 1959. It was then deeded to the State Historical Society of Wisconsin. Charles Philip Chappie Fox became the director in 1960. Circus World features a one-ring circus with two shows a day during the summer. The site here was the original grounds of the Ringling's Winter Quarters. Ten of the original buildings are still here. We haven't heard of any hauntings at Circus World, but how could this place not have ghost stories? I mean, if you think that stuff attaches to objects and such. Absolutely. These circus wagons they're talking about, they've got them all over the grounds out there and they look so cool. Yeah, there's got to be something connected with that, you would imagine. I searched high and low. If you guys have heard of any haunting stories from Circus World or work there, been there yourselves and had an experience, let us know. Please share. One place that is definitely haunted is the Owl Ringling Mansion. This was the home of the man who really started it all, Albert Ringling. He had the true circus spirit and he survived them all. Adam Forepaw, P.T. Barnum, and James Bailey. Albert married Eliza Morris on November 18, 1890. He called her Lou, and that is how we will refer to her as well. He found his perfect match in Lou, and she was an amazing woman who loved the circus as much as he did. She worked within the circus for 25 years, starting in the sideshow, Kelly, as a snake charmer. A woman after my own heart. I know. I can <laughs> see you two sitting around having a great time talking about snakes. She did the equestrian act and rode in parades and was in charge of the circus wardrobe. Very cool. Al hired a Chicago architect to build the Al Ringling Theater that still stands today. He spent $100,000 on that. And then he contributed to the building at the St. John's Evangelical Lutheran Church in Baraboo. Al and Lou had their mansion built in 1905. They hired architects Keyes and Colburn to design the Romanesque Revival Redstone Mansion, 
and it was built by Carl and George Eisenberg. The interior had hand-carved woodwork, ornate murals, hand-painted ceilings, and Tiffany glass. Al died in his mansion on January 1st, 1916. Before that, he commissioned a gorgeous $25,000 marble mausoleum with the names Al and Lou Ringling etched above the door in the Baraboo Cemetery. Ida Ringling North, Al's little sister, moved into the mansion after his death. The Elks acquired the property in 1936 and held on to it until 2013 when two circus professionals and a businessman bought it and began its extensive renovations. Those circus professionals are Joe and Carmen Colosa, and they live in the mansion with their children. You heard a little bit from Carmen in the last episode about the performer. She's the one who was in the Globe of Death. Right. So we're about to play the interview that I did with them right now. And just so everybody knows, we recorded this probably a month and a half ago. So this is before COVID-19 or anything happened. So you're going to hear them talking about this brewery that they're getting ready to open. This is a place that runs off of events. Exactly. I have not spoken to them since. I can imagine that this is hitting them very hard. And I'm thinking that the brewery didn't get to have its big grand opening yet. I know. And I really want to get there at some point and check it all out. Uh, Yeah, we definitely want to check it out. So I just want to put kind of a timestamp on this. You're going to hear things that are not relevant to what's going on right now. This is before all of this stuff happened. But I think you're really going to enjoy this. They're going to share their numerous experiences with the spirits that share the mansion with them. Here's that interview. Well, I am really looking forward to talking to you, not only about the house. I'm also excited to talk to you about your circus experience and such. I'd be glad to fill you in on anything you'd like to know about. So, Joe, what got you started with the circus? I know that you had worked for Ringling Brothers as a train master, I believe. I did. I was born and raised in the circus, fourth generation of my family from Connecticut originally. And uh, in 2000, I went and joined the Ringling Brothers Circus, and I started out as a concession guy and worked my way up to assistant general manager of the concessions, and then from there I became, I went over to the train and became assistant train master, and then for three years I was actually the train master and ran the train. That's amazing because I don't know how many people know how important the train is, but that's basically how the circus got everywhere it was going, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I uh, managed a mile-long train. I was in charge of, you know, maintaining it, repairing it, getting it down the road, getting it loaded, unloaded, supplied. And, you know, I could be fixing a toilet up to, you know, bringing in a 100-ton crane and lifting up a railroad car and changing out a wheel. And I would have to take care of everything in between those two things. Wow, that is amazing. So your family had been doing uh, circus stuff for generations. What other kinds of things was your family involved with? Oh, performing, concessions. They not only did circus, they did rodeo, vaudeville. I had an aunt that was a country music singer for NBC Radio. A lot of entertainment. I've got a sister that's in theater. So many different facets of, you know, not only the circus business, but show business in general. Oh my gosh, you, I just love your family. It sounds like so much fun. <laughs> Yeah, it, it is fun, that's for sure. Yeah, we have a lot of history. So, And then my wife's family also uh, did circus as well. Well, so, I know when I was talking to Debbie, she had said that she participated in one of my favorite things I remember watching as a kid is the Globe of Death, where all these motorcycles would be inside this globe going around and around and around, and you thought, oh my gosh, they're going to hit each other. 
and they wouldn't. It was just amazing, and Carmen's family did that, right? Yeah, they, they actually are one of the few families in the world, or few troops in the world, to do eight motorcycles at once. Yeah, pretty incredible, and, you know, unfortunately, they did hit each other once in a while. There have been a few accidents, but fortunately, everybody survived. It was very dangerous what they did. So Carmen was actually the first woman in the United States to drive a motorcycle in the globe. She's a daredevil. I don't argue with her. So <laughs> so was her family always riding the motorcycles and doing tricks with that, or were there other things that they did? No, the only thing they do, at least in the circus, is the motorcycles. But back in Paraguay, they have a 100,000-acre cattle ranch. And they also are are into rodeos and horse riding. Carmen did, you know, rodeo and barrel racing. And they they could have very easily performed with horses in the circus if they wanted to as well. But the only thing they did in the circus was the motorcycles. And then you you have one child or two children? I've got four kids. Four kids. Oh, my gosh. That's a circus in and of itself. Yep, yep. My wife keeps telling me we need tour guides, so I play along. (laughs) And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. You know, I really think we need to get more reading. Does he even know how? Don't judge. Well, he is pretty busy caretaking in the cemetery. Did you see that petunia tower he built? (laughs) How could I miss it? And what about audiobooks then? Perfect. And I know just the ones. Kobo audiobooks. Yeah, he can listen while he works. And don't they have thousands of audiobooks to choose from? including bestsellers and originals? And there's two great ways to save. First, you can start an audiobook subscription and get your first book free. Kobo has a free app. You go in there, you select your book, and you can start listening right from there. And the book is yours to keep even if you cancel. Every month afterwards, you pay just $9.99, and you can choose an audiobook from their catalog regardless of the list price. That's a better price than other monthly audiobook subscriptions. And the second way to save is, you can use the code HISTORY40 to get 40% off one of their select audiobooks, curated by Kobo's audio experts. They have something for everyone. To get started, visit Kobo.com forward slash history goes bump. That's K-O-B-O dot com slash history goes bump. Oh, this audiobook looks good. Spells of iron and bone. Mart, that's a romance audiobook. I know. <laughs> Again, to get started, visit Kobo.com forward slash history goes bump. What made you guys decide to make your home in Baraboo? Well, funny story. I've been to Baraboo several times because of the circus. You know, mm-hmm. this is this is circus Mecca. And uh, so I came here when I was a kid and I actually sat on the front porch of the mansion when I was a kid. And uh, I, I got interested in the history of the, the Ringlings when I was eight years old. So I believe it was about 10 or 11 when I came to Baraboo, and I was pretty involved with, involved with the mansion at that point. Fast forward to us being on Ringling, we had friends here, and it actually didn't start with the Al Ringling Mansion. It started with the Charles Ringling Mansion, another brother's home that's in Baraboo. And uh, it was the only one that dated back to a Ringling brother living in it that was still owned by the Ringling family. And uh, Sally Ringling was living in there, and unfortunately, it passed away. A friend had recommended Ringlings that I should buy a museum. 
at first I was like, yeah, you know, I love Baraboo, but it's pretty far away from where I'm from, and I don't think I want to move out to Baraboo and do that. That's cool, but no thanks. And uh, about a year later, another friend brought it up again, and my wife said, you know, maybe somebody's trying to tell you something. Maybe this is your calling, you know? And we talked about it and talked about it, and I started to get more interested in the prospect of maybe doing something. So we got in touch with the Ringling family, and uh, at that point, they didn't want to sell the house, but they were willing to lease it to us, and it was full of Ringling artifacts that they saved that went back to Henry and Charles Ringling, and they were willing to let us borrow all that stuff to do a museum and so on. So Carmen and I made a trek to Baraboo, and it was Carmen's first time coming here. We went to the uh, House on the Rock, which is fraction here. And on the way back from the House on the Rock, I said to my wife, I said, you know, we should go look at the Al Ringling Mansion, which is an Elks Lodge now, before we go look at the Charles Ringling home, just for comparison. And she said, yeah, sure, let's go. So we made some calls. We got permission to come in. They gave us a tour. And we actually fell in love with this house. And uh, not that the other one isn't beautiful in its own right, but this one is much more diversified. We could do so many things with it. That's what we liked about it because, you know, we, we obviously couldn't buy one of these places just to live in it. We're not wealthy people. We had to, we would had to put it to work. And that was part of the fun anyway. So we went and looked at the other house after we looked at the Al Ringling Mansion. We went back to the circus and... As much as I like the Al Ringling Mansion, it wasn't for sale. It was an Oaks Lodge. I thought it was cool, but, you know, we had to move with the one that we were able to do something with. And uh, my wife kept bugging me to call the Elks and see if they would ever consider selling this house. And, you know, you women are, and I mean it in a good way. You, you know, behind <laughs> every great guy is a better woman. She pushed and pushed and pushed until finally I said, okay, fine, I'll call the Elks and see if they'll ever sell it. But, you know, that place is huge. It's about 18,000 square feet. It's gigantic. So when I called them, timing is everything. And the guy said, you know, you're not going to believe this, but, you know, with you guys being here a few weeks ago and looking at the other house to possibly purchase it, we decided that maybe we should put the Al Ringley Mansion on the market because we really can no longer afford to keep it. And he was actually on his way to the realty office, believe it or not. And I said, you know what? turn around, don't go to the realty office. I don't know how we're going to do this, but we want to talk to you about buying the Alrenny Mansion. And we were really lucky because it took two years to negotiate to buy the house and things always work out for the best. They always do because at the end of the day, the Charles Ringling house, which we originally were going to go for, went for 1.2 or 3 million. And we ended up getting the Al Ringling Mansion for $250,000. Wow, what a difference. Yeah, that $1.2 is a bit steep. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's a good price, I think, for that house. But, you know, the Al Ringling Mansion needed a lot of work. We had an inspection done, and we have an inspection booklet that's an inch thick. Mm. You know, and since 2013, when we purchased it, we've put about a million dollars into this house, and it needs another million worth of work. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, we're putting our blood, sweat, and tears and every freaking penny we have. Plus, you know, it's not just my wife and I. It's also our partner, Don Horowitz, who's from Long Island, New York. And Don's like a brother to me. He's family to us. And um, he decided to partner with us. And Don is a great help with everything here financially, obviously. I mean, he would like to be out here more, but he can't because he's busy with busy with his business in New York. But he is able to help us to keep things going here and, and uh, get this place restored and so on. So that's basically what we're doing. We open the place up for tours. We do a one-hour tour. And uh, we either do a regular tour, which is 90% of the time, once in a while. 
on weekends or evenings, we get a phone call for a couple or a group that wants to do a haunted tour. And that's a whole different experience. So mm-hmm. we'll take them through and we don't do any hocus pocus stuff. We don't try to scare people. We don't have anybody hiding anywhere. We tell ghost stories. They've got some ghost detecting equipment they could play around with. And that night, either they get lucky and something happens or they don't. You know, we always tell every, everybody, you know, some nights are pretty amazing and other nights it's pretty mundane. You know, we, we just don't know how cooperative they're going to be if they want to play along or not. The house has been investigated many times by ghost investigators. We've also had many psychics and many mediums in the house, and we've always been told that there are about 25 to 30 spirits that are in this house. So the house is very haunted. Wow, yes. Yeah, there's nothing bad, knock on wood, that's ever happened in the house, but they are very much here. I mean, every week there's something that happens. Sometimes it happens every day. Sometimes it'll happen several times in a day. So you just never know what to expect. So, and it, you know, obviously that took my wife a little while to get used to, but uh, and, and even me. But I had lived in a couple other houses. The house that I had sold to buy this house in Connecticut was also haunted. So I was kind of kind of used to it. Whereas Carmen's never really dealt with that before. You know, I think now that she's lived here for a while, it's become a pretty novel thing for her, and she's accepted it. And she knows that you know they're not going to harm us. They're just here. Well, let me, first of all, thank you and Carmen and Don for saving this beautiful mansion and putting the money and the sweat and the blood and the tears into it. Because I just, I find it devastating when these beautiful homes get demolished because they are abandoned or people just don't want to take care of them anymore. Yeah, you're, you're very welcome. Yeah, it's, it's somebody had to do it. This house needed an angel and it got three of them. Sometimes people ask me why. Sometimes I don't know why. I don't know why. This has just become my life meant to restore this house and hinged on that is to make sure that the Ringling Brothers and their family and their legacy is remembered and honored. This was originally the home of Al Ringling, who was the oldest of the Ringling Brothers. Funny story. They, they, uh, the Ringling Brothers, you know, all of them didn't start building houses until the, around the turn of the last century. And Al was the first one to build a house. He built a modest, still 3,500 square foot house, which is a good sized house. But he built, for the kind of money they had, he built a modest house that was a Queen Anne wooden frame house on this property. And then after that, his brother Alf T built a huge in town that was about the same size as, as the Al Ringling Mansion. And then a little while later, Charles Ringling built about a 7,000-square-foot house, the house that we were talking about earlier. And uh, by 1904, 1905, you know, Al, I think, said to hell with it. Being the older brother and the matriarch of the family and the business, he couldn't have that. So he bought the land next door behind the church, and he pushed the queen in over there. And he proceeded to build the biggest house in Sauk County, which is the Al Ringling Mansion. And they started construction in 1905. They completed it in 1906. Took about 18 months to build, and they spent 100,000 on this house when houses cost about 2,500 bucks. How many rooms did it originally have? It has uh, originally it had four main bedrooms. 
a big bedrooms, and then it had a servant bedroom, and then uh, total rooms was about 20 rooms. So the original mansion, now it's 18,000 square feet. Originally, it was about eleven to 12,000 square feet. The Elks had added the additional square footage in 1948. And is that when they purchased the house? No, they actually purchased it in uh, 1936 from Al's sister, Ida, and they were able to buy it for $6,000. Oh my God, so, $6,000? Yeah, which today the equivalent would have been about $80,000, which is still still quite reasonable. Yeah. Um, the house actually abandoned for about nine years. The Ringlings owned it, but they weren't doing anything with it. And uh, there wasn't even a caretaker here. Neighborhood kids broke into the house to damage and so on. Uh-huh. And then when the Elks bought it in 36, they owned it for 78 years until we bought it in 2013. So Carmen and I and the Ringling family are the only ones that have ever lived in this house. Only us and the Ringlings. That's it. Well, what's really good about that, too, is basically you've had three, if you want to call the Elks a family, three families that have owned it. That's pretty good for a property like that. Yeah, three owners. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The Elks did a couple of detrimental things to the property, which were unfortunate. But overall, had the Elks not purchased it in 36, I don't think the mansion would still be standing today. So I think they did the best they could. So. Yeah, if it had been abandoned for all those decades, I'm sure it would have fallen down. Yeah, and also in its history, they almost, the mansion almost has been torn down three times in its history, including about six months before we were going to purchase it. It almost got torn down. Wow. So you guys are actually living in an upstairs area? Yep, we uh, took the third floor of the mansion, which was a uh, finished attic. It's got nine-foot-tall ceilings. And believe it or not, it's 3,000 square feet. Wow. That's a big house. We added five additional bedrooms for our family with all the kids and everything. So now the mansion has 10 bedrooms and uh, we have our own private space upstairs. So there could be any events going on down in the mansion, whether it be tours or a reception or soon people staying in one of the four main bedrooms that the Ringlings had. And we can go about our business up above and not have a problem with anyone. That's very nice. So you've got the museum there. It sounds like you're going to rent out rooms. And then you just mentioned you've got a brewery you're getting ready to open, which I'm excited about because I'm a craft beer enthusiast. So it sounds good to me. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll tell you, that was a that was a heartbreak turn for us because I'm, I'm not a big beer drinker, although I enjoy beer now that we're going a little bit more that we're going into the beer business. We were doing restoration on the house and I pulled a wooden box out of the floor in a bathroom. We were pulling up the wood floor there to use elsewhere because we we're going to make that say bathroom. We're going to make it into a bathroom, but it was a walk in closet. We needed floor to do repairs on the rest of the mansion. So I said to the floor guy, well, to hell with it. I'll pull up the floor in that closet because we'll put tile in there when we make it a bathroom. And when I did, I noticed that the subfloor was damaged a little bit. Like there was a piece that was like placed in there. I was really looking to see. I pulled the board up. I was curious to see if there was a drain pipe there for a toilet because it was odd to me that this was the only bedroom in the mansion that didn't have a bathroom. I mean, even including the servant bedroom even has a bathroom. And I thought, well, maybe maybe that's where the toilet was going to go, and maybe there's a drain there, and we already have pipes, you know? Mm-hmm. And when I pulled that board up, there was no plumbing, but down, sitting on the ceiling, down in the joist pocket was a wooden box, and I pulled the wooden box out, 
and there was various ringling artifacts in there, including a recipe. And I'll be honest with you, when I first found all the stuff, I looked recipe, whatever, it didn't even dawn on me that it was a beer recipe at that point. And I threw it aside because to me, historically, at that time, there was more interesting things in there. Mm -hmm. And then uh, put the box in our archives. And then a year later, I was looking for stuff to put on display in our billiards room and our display cabinets for tours. And I opened up this recipe and kind of really looked at it. And it dawned on me that it was a beer recipe contacted the Ringling family. I know a lot of their great-grandchildren and grandchildren and great-nieces and nephews and discussed with them finding this recipe. And they said that the family did have an old recipe, an old beer recipe that they brought over from Germany. And uh, they felt that indeed this was the recipe. And it is a German beer recipe. told my partner, Don, I said, Don, I think we should go into the beer business. And he's like, what? We don't know anything about beer. And I said, well, we need to learn because I think it's the right thing to do. My gut feeling is we should open up a brewery in our ballroom in the back that was added by the Elks. And uh, we should share this beer with the world. I think a Ringling beer would really do really well. Mm-hmm. Here we are three years, might be four years now. Actually, I think it's four years since we found that. And uh, in May, we're getting ready to open up a brewery that we've infused about $500,000 into another whole dimension to this property here. So what we're really doing is turning this place into a destination. So not only do you have the original mansion with tours, you've got uh, rooms you could stay at in the mansion, including Alan Lou Ringling's bedrooms. You could come to the brewery, try our craft beer. We're going to have food available. And then down underneath this ballroom where, that we made it at the tap room for the brewery was a six-lane bowling alley that the Elks put in. <laughs> the bowling alley had kind of run its course. The floor needed to be replaced at a cost of a little over a million dollars. <sighs> we made the decision to scrap the bowling alley. And we actually used a lot of the floor up in the, in the brewery, which is pretty cool for our bar top and German beer hall tables. It's all bowling alley. By pulling the bowling alley out now, this year, once the brewery gets up and running, we're going to be adding 4,000 square feet of museum space to the museum. Wow. So part of what we're putting up down there is a 63,000-part scratch-built miniature circus. Oh, my gosh. If it's anything like what they have here, it's going to be amazing. It, It is exactly like that. The only thing we don't have is the trains. The guy... The man that built it years ago gave the train away to somebody. So we've got the tents and all the carved people and the wagons and the whole nine yards. The big top alone is 25 feet long. Well, that's going to be amazing. Yeah, thanks. Plus, we'll put more Ringling artifacts down there that we have on display. We have the greatest collection, self-proclaimed, but I'm pretty sure we're there. We've got the greatest and largest collection of artifacts that belong to the Ringling family, private artifacts, whether it be their suits or their shaving kits or, you know, their papers, their book collections, their furniture. We, we have a lot of their stuff because over the, you know, the Ringling family has been very good to us because fortunately they saved a lot of that stuff. And a lot of people over the years would bug the Ringling family for circus stuff. Nobody was really interested in their, you know, the Ringling family always kids around with me, their underwear. You know, nobody wanted my great grandfather's <laughs> underwear until you came along. I really don't want their underwear. Right? Yeah. You know, I do, I, 
I do like their personal stuff. I mean, I even have, you know, the men used to wear the wool bathing suits back in the day. Mm -hmm. I even have brother wool bathing suits that some of them have and we have their shoes we have you know their personal documents we we have all kinds of stuff we have charles ringling's birth certificate we have henry ringling's marriage certificate wow you know we we've traveled all over the country collecting all this stuff and every year we're finding more and more of it so we actually just bought a a book because you just toured the ringling museum in sarasota didn't you yeah this last weekend That's awesome. So 1936, when John Ringling died, he gave his entire estate to the state of Florida, which you might have learned. And they did an appraisal for John Ringling's entire estate. I mean, right, no kidding, right down to his underwear. I mean, everything. The book is an inch thick. And there were only two appraisal books that were done. One of them is at the Ringling Museum in Sarasota, and the other one just surfaced, and we were able to purchase it for our archive. Oh, that's amazing. um, yeah, it's just full of so much incredible stuff. You know, the Ringlings, when they first started their circus, they started out of Baraboo and they moved by wagon in 1884. And six years later, they decided to put their circus on a train so they could travel all over the country. And we actually have all the original letters and invoices for the first train that they bought. We could tell you what they paid for the train cars, what color they were, what the numbers were on them, and what they were for and where they came from as we have it. What a treasure. That is so amazing. Yeah, there's a lot of lot of incredible stuff. So what we're doing also with the basement is we're taking Alan Liu's original ballroom, which is underneath the original mansion. So the bowling alley was under the ballroom that was added by the Elks. And then Alan Liu's original ballroom was underneath the first floor of the mansion. That was the Elk Lounge. So we gutted that all out. And we're going to restore the ballroom back into a ballroom, but we're going to use that as a research and learning center for the Ringlings. Oh, so that'll be, be a complete archive down there. Well, that'll be great because they're going to need lots of room for archives and things, too. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, the Ringling family keeps giving us stuff all the time, which is wonderful. So they've been very supportive. Well, the Ringlings seem to be very attached to their homes because uh, I learned down here, obviously, at Katazan that uh, John is still hanging out in his home, and it seems that Alf and Lou are still hanging out in that house. So have you guys, I mean, obviously, you've had experiences there at the Al Ringling house. Is there anything you'd like to share? Oh, there's a lot of great stories. You know, one of the most haunted places was the attic, which is where we're at. And I'll tell you a funny thing. When I first moved into the house, it was just me. So I, I left Ringling in April 2014 to come here. I, I, you know, gave up my job, retired from the circus, and moved here to take care of this house. And Carmen had a contract that she needed to fulfill for a year before she could leave. So I left the circus on my own, and Carmen stayed behind, and I moved in here, and I moved into the servants' quarters, and weird things already started to happen. Now, we knew. We knew the Elks told us the house was haunted, so we knew we were getting into that when we bought it and moving in here and such. But you would hear weird things in the servant bedroom, and then, uh, you know, this was going on for a week or two. Not every night, just once in a while. Finally, one night, I'm laying in bed reading, 11, 12 o'clock at night, and it was like somebody either walked into or kicked the end of my bed. And at that point, I just laid the book down, and I talked to thin air. And I basically said, listen, we're here. The Elks have sold the house. It's no longer a club. 
becoming a museum and private home. We're trying to save it. We're trying to restore it. I work all day long on your house. At night, when I come upstairs to my private space, I need peace and quiet. I don't care if you guys have a party all night long in the mansion. Just don't come into my space. Don't freak me out, please. I don't mind if you're here, but let me sleep at night where I'm at and where I live. I need peace so that I could work on your house. And knock on wood, since that night, not only did they not bother us in the servants' quarters, but they don't even bother us up in the attic anymore, which is like, you know, one of the most active places at one time. That's really nice. Not it's like I'm, they they know you respect the house, so they're respecting you too. Yeah, I believe so. I mean, things got a little wonky when we started building the apartment up in the attic because we were, you know, everything we do in the house is restoration. We're trying to bring it back as close as possible to how it was in the Ringlings lived here. But then you have the attic where we're putting in a modern kitchen, we're adding bathrooms, we're putting up walls and doors where they never were. And that started to stir them up a little bit. So I used housing rods to communicate with them a lot. One day when things started getting really crazy, I just sat down with the dowsing rods downstairs and tried to communicate with them. And I just explained to them that, you know, I know we're... I know we're making changes that maybe you don't like in the attic. I said, but we're committed to saving this house for you and to telling your story. And for us to be comfortable here, we have to take that space and we have to make it into a home. And I hope that you will accept that, understand that. And the dowsing rods went to a resounding yes. And um, knock up whatever since then, even up in the attic, we haven't had any issues. It doesn't mean... There isn't the occasional thing that happens because there is the occasional weird thing that happens. We have electronics a lot that go off on their own upstairs. You know, like for instance, my two-year-old daughter's got a couple of little Disney uh, vanities, you know, the little vanities they have, Uh and they light up around the mirror and do funky things. You've got to touch them for them to go off. And one night they were next to each other by the TV about, you know, 10 feet away from me. And one of them started to go off by itself. Okay, whatever. You know, you guys are messing around with it. No big deal. Well, 10 seconds later, the other one started going off. And then they were both going off at the same time with nobody near them, you know, which was really interesting. Yeah, that's not a coincidence. Yeah. So now when this was an addict, my kids, we had a lot of boxes stored up here. We back, packed up all our stuff from Ringling, packed up all our stuff from my house in Connecticut, and moved it out here. And we literally lived out of boxes for a couple of years until we got ourselves organized here. And so all that stuff was stored up here along with their toys. And my wife would bring the kids up here to play a lot. And there are two old hooks in the ceiling up here with old rope hanging. And it used to be for a swing with, with Al Ringling's nephews and niece, you know, his sister's kids, who mm-hmm. who she wound up with the house and the kids grew up here, they had a swing up here. So me and the kids decided a few years ago, hey, it'd be fun to hang a swing up there again. So we did. And on several occasions, Carmen would be upstairs playing with the kids, nowhere near the swing. And the swing would start going really crazy, like somebody was swinging on it, like six to eight feet in each direction. I mean, going like crazy. And the air conditioning doesn't blow like that. Yeah. You know, and then also Carmen and I sometimes would be laying down in the servants' quarters 
and we would hear a ball bouncing up here because all the toys were up here. Mm -hmm. And not like a ball falling off of something and, you know, boink, 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 right? No, ga-boink, 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 like somebody, you know, that was something that happened. And then Carmen and I, separate occasions, have seen Al Ringling. Oh, wow. I was giving a tour. His spirit? And I saw, what's that? His actual spirit? I saw him in a mirror, so it was a reflection of him. I was giving a tour, and in the mirror in the library, I could see back through the foyer, and he basically came through the foyer and went out the front doors of the house without the front doors moving. Um, but you could see his high white collar. You could see his mustache. It was him. You wow. Know? That happened, and maybe a year later, we were coming back after dark. We'd gone shopping at uh, Walmart, and Carmen went ahead of me, we parked over behind the carriage entrance and we used the carriage door and Carmen went ahead of me and she was going to go in the, the door and all of a sudden she came back out again and I'm like, what are you doing? She goes, well, I'll just wait for you. I'll just wait for you. I said, okay. So we went in together and we went upstairs and she said, you know, when, when I went up to the door earlier, I got really scared. And I said, why? She said, because I saw who I think was Al Ringling. He was wearing a black suit with his white collar, his mustache. And when I walked up the door to open the door, I think I startled him because he was in the hallway looking towards the mirror in the hall. And as soon as I made the noise to open the door, he turned quickly and skedaddled and, you know, walked away very quickly. So that was a couple of things that happened. And then um, oftentimes if we talk about Lou Ringling, you'll smell perfume, like Linton's perfume. And what's interesting about it is about three years ago, a lady who knew the chauffeur's wife for the Ringlings gave us, she wound up with not only the china from this mansion, which she has loaned us, she hasn't donated it, but it's here on loan. But she also wound up with a perfume bottle that was Lou Ringling's. And when you open the perfume bottle, it's the same perfume that you'll smell often when you're talking about Mrs. Ringling. That's amazing. Yeah. So she kind of lets you know that she's present. Let's see what else. One time we came home and the mansion kitchen used to have cabinets. They're not original cabinets. We just removed them. It was cabinets the Elks put in. We needed to get them out of there for the brewery, reconfiguring the kitchen. But anyway, the cabinets were really high up. And to really open them, you needed to go up on kind of a stepladder and open them. And uh, one night, Carmen and I came home from Walmart, and we went in the kitchen because we used to use the mansion kitchen before we had the kitchen upstairs. And um, every single cabinet door up above was open and out perfectly 90 degrees, all of them straight out. Whoa. Yeah just facing straight out. It was crazy. No idea why they did that, what the message was, no clue. And then we, uh, I mean, there's 6,000 stories, and I'm just trying to think of different ones to tell you. Well, I know we you have the, you we, have four children, and, you know, kids are usually a little bit more, I don't know, they feel it a little bit more than we do. Do they ever tell you any stories about feeling anything or seeing anything? Yep. Yeah, Jojo and Pearl are our two younger kiddos feel very familiar and very comfortable with Alan Lou. A lot of times, though, we've got a picture of Alan Lou that's on our ticket box, so the picture's down low, and they'll walk up and rub their faces like they're very fond of them and oh. like they know Yeah, like they know them. 
and um, they claim that on occasion they do see them. We we do say good night and good morning to them every day. Usually, when I go down into the mansion, I say good morning now and Lou and Ida. At night, when we go upstairs, the kids will say good night to them, and you know. So we have a lot of you know. We don't know if they can hear us, but we have a lot of respect and reverence for them. That's um, great. And then one time, my daughter Emily, who's now ten years old, when she was about five or six, one morning I walked out into the second floor parlor and she was leaning against the door frame looking into Mrs. Ringling's bedroom because they had separate bedrooms, which was common back then. She was giggling and laughing. And I said, Emily, what are you doing? And she goes, oh, she goes, I'm just playing with Lou. And I said, oh, okay. I said, what's Lou doing? And she said, she's making faces at me. She's in front of her mirror and she's looking at a dress and she keeps turning at me and making funny faces at me. And I said, oh, okay, well, that's nice that she's goofing around with you. And she goes, yeah, she does that to me all the time. I said, oh, okay. Wow, I can totally picture that in my mind's eye, too. Yeah, I mean, kids are more susceptible to Mm -hmm. it, you know. And then I want to tell you another story. We we had a friend of ours in here that's a medium and she was using a... I think the the one that you use with the radio frequencies is called a Vox, right? Isn't that a Vox? Yeah, like the where ghost box kind of thing? Yeah, where their actual voice can come through on a radio signal. Yeah. So one time we were using that, and uh, our medium friend, her name is Diane, and she said, you know, JoJo had just been born like six months before. Diane said, you know, Lou, you, you must really love having a little baby in the house. You know, and oh, here he is. And all of a sudden, here comes my wife with JoJo. And on the Vox, all of a sudden, you hear a woman's voice go, Hi, JoJo. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I just got chills. You know, I think that was Lou saying hi. You'd said that, I guess, psychics and stuff feel like there's 25 to 30 spirits there in the Owl Ringling Mansion. Do they have any idea who these other spirits might be? Um, I've been told it's the Ringling family. I've been told that it's elks that have passed away in the mm. house or were attached to the house. And then I've also been told that a lot of my family is here as well. My my grandmother, my dad hangs out here. I have a very close friend in Connecticut who was in his 80s that I was very good friends with. He was like a dad to me. And uh, I'm told that he hangs out here. His spirit is here as well. So, And this has been told to us by several mediums and several psychics without us telling each one already what we know, if that makes sense. Sure. So, so it's not like they are already have information on you and know who's passed away and who'd be close to you to say, oh, they're here. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, a lot of my family that was close to me actually hang out, hangs out here as well. But, you know, the Ringling family themselves, they pretty much are all here. And I think Al, Lou, and Ida are attached to the house simply because they lived here. But I think the reason that a lot of the Ringling family comes here is because, again, we have the greatest collection in the world of their personal artifacts and all of their things. This is the biggest congregation of their stuff. So it just makes sense that they're still attached to it. You know, mm-hmm. it may not be the house, but they're attached to their oil paintings or, you know, their book collections or what have you. It's here. Maybe even in the last several years since we bought the place, maybe John Ringling didn't typically visit Al's house, but maybe John comes to visit here more often because we've got his stuff here, or a lot of his stuff here. Sure. You know, it's just it's just here. That's wonderful. Hello. Hi, Carmen. It's Diane. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. 
So what do you think about living in a haunted mansion? Oh, in the beginning, it's kind of, oh my gosh. But now I just kind of, it's normal. I have my kids here with us, you know, like it's, it's kind of um, normal. But it's, it's not bothering me. It's in the beginning, yes. But in the beginning, we see them, you know, like we hear stuff, something happening, you know. We moved here in the third, we built the apartment in the third floor. Mm-hmm. And after that, I never hear them again, you know, walk in this part. Because in the third floor, in the second floor, they still there. Gotcha. You know, but here, I never hear nothing again. But, you know, like after we move out here, we like living here with the, all the, uh, but my, my sister lived with us. Before last year, and she still lives in somebody walking, and then like at two, three o'clock in the morning. Mm. And it, yeah, and she saw like a little boy in the in the in the her in her door, and it's it's, it's kind of creepy stuff, but you know, like it's scary. But, yeah, you know. Mm. And then she screamed. Then later, she said this for her it's just normal too. Or she hears somebody use the bathroom, and you know, like it sounds like if somebody take a shower or use the sink or, you know, like it, or use the toilet or walk around her living room. So she, and then she sometimes she say, are you, you were Joe just last night you go one downstairs because we hear people, you know, like walking in the house. And, and then she says sometimes you hear like a people like they have party like in the house before. Uh-huh. And then she say that uh, walking up and down. The yeah, the people walking in the house, and they, you know, like it's, it's, it's so weird. I say, oh my god, I never hear that before. Like you know, like a, a party or something like that. But she, she hears stuff and stuff like that. <laughs> I just love it when people are talking about ghosts, and they're like, "Yeah, you just get used to it." <laughs> yeah, in the beginning, to me, like I just. I told my husband, he said, yeah, yeah. And uh, because he's, after one year, he lives here alone. I just moved here. Mm-hmm. But for him, oh, it's normal, you know, like, I said, you crazy? I said, this, I know living in this house. I said, I'm going back in the circus. So <laughs> <laughs> and he started talking about what he hear and before he was, you know, like, can't even go in the bathroom alone. And I had to wait for him to go with me in the bathroom and stand the door. And I just so scared. But, you know, like, I've been living here for four years now. I'm pretty good, you know, like, I just, oh. Me too. I could walk around the house in the dark. Yeah, me too. I come in back sometimes for work and, you know, like, uh, no lights. And I just use my phone. Um, so, for me, I kind of forgot all the stuff happened here before. And they're very good. And then, yeah, I never... You know, like if they are hurt to us, yeah, to us, not us. Yeah, so, so it's not a big deal to you because no. you're you're not afraid of them. Yeah. So, and then my baby boy, and the beginning, oh, the beginning when we moved here, the, the, something happened was the he has his friend, like his name is was Cello. His name is Cello, and one day he always I hear he's talking with somebody, you know. And I started his toys. He's talking about his toys, you know. And one day, you know, like, um, he's 
sit in the living room and I cook in the kitchen and I just I hear he fight with somebody and later he moved behind the couch and they said you know like they fight I hear you talking they fight no it's mine or this or no I know this my you know they fight and I say to him, you know like Jojo well, who's he talking to and then he say uh, uh, cello and I say who's cello and, you know like and and later he says, my friend. And I said, oh, okay. So I just look at him, you know, like, I just went back with whatever I was doing. And then he just going, and he's, he's mad, and, you know, like, he's mad. And I said, what happened? And he said, and Cello is for Papa. And I said, why? Because Cello take my toys away, and her mommy come and take him. Huh. And, I, and I just, where is Cello now? And then he said, he's going to Papa. Because mommy... He never coming back. He never, never, I never hear Cello coming back and fight with him or play with him anymore. So I guess if he's doing Cello, doing something bad, and then never coming back. Wow. And after that, he never hear Cello come back. That's the only thing happened here wow. with Jojo. Mm-hmm. With it, about minutes before the apartment. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of stuff that can happen in four years, especially if you've got just that few handful there of spirits all over the place yeah it's gonna it's gonna be too much and sometimes uh we have people coming doing investigation and i don't want to see sometimes they say you want to go with us it's gonna be fun and they have camera and they have radio they have all this stuff and i say no way i now want to know what you guys get i don't want to <laughs> see what you guys get because, you know like no way, because I don't want to walk in the house and I see where it was or something like that. No. Yeah. I never go. I can understand that. that. Well, but Joe and Carmen, I want to thank you guys for joining me and telling me about the house and your experiences. Yeah. Yeah, you're very really welcome. Huge. I just really, really appreciate it. And this has been so special to me because I absolutely adore the circus. So it's been really neat to talk to you guys. Well, wonderful. We're glad to help you. You know, if you ever get up here and visit, we'll show you what we've done with the house. We've spent about a million dollars on the house so far, which I told you earlier. So there's a lot of work that's been done. Well, I look forward to it. I know it won't be in this year, but probably next year. I know we're going to be heading up that direction. So that'll be very cool. Sounds great. We're looking forward to your show and let us know what we can do to help you out. All right. You guys have a great night. and Thank you again. You're very welcome. You too. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Don Horowitz is a New Yorker from Long Island, and like us, he loves a circus and its history. We talked to him several weeks ago, so this too is before COVID-19, and he tells us how he came to co-own the Al Ringling Mansion. And then he shares his personal paranormal experiences in the house. And the last one is a big one. It's a great story. (laughs) Enough that it turned him from skeptic to believer. And here is that interview with Don now. Hi, Don. It's Diane from History Goes Bump. How are you? Good, good, good. So you're up in New York, is that right? Yes, I'm uh, on Long Island, actually. Well, you are co-owner of the Al Ringling Mansion with Joe and Carmen. So the first thing I wanted to ask you is what made you decide to get involved in buying a big old mansion that's connected to the circus? For many years, probably since the early 1990s, I was what some people call circus fan or circus hobbyist. And circus hobbyists and fans have many different interests within circus. My interest has always been, uh, I'm a collector by, uh, by nature, so I would collect all kinds of uh, memorabilia about circus. 
for me, uh, more than the actual performance, I'm more into the history of circus, uh, the business of running a circus, the marketing, the advertising. For me, the traditional circus with animals has always been uh, a strong thing about the circus for me and in, you know, in my heart. Through uh, my interest in circus, I got to know many of the circus people. Many circus fans just enjoy the performance or they're into clowns, but there's very few that are really close to the, uh, the circus people and even to some of the owners and the animal caretakers and such. It takes a few years to sort of build the circus personnel's trust. And as time goes on, you strike up friendships with different circus people. I've known people on uh, Cole Brothers Circus, which was a large traveling tent show, mostly on the East Coast from a lot in Florida. And they go down to Louisiana and then up to um, uh, Massachusetts a lot. And I used to do surveys for them because I had to do more than just visit the show. I had to have a project and, <laughs> and such. So I got to know many of the circus people through that. Uh, with the Ringling Show, where Joe Colosa and Carmen were, the circus Ringling Show would come to Long Island. It would go to northern New Jersey. For many years, it was in Madison Square Garden. The Ringling Show would be in the greater New York area for sometimes four to six weeks between three or four different venues. Wow. And ironically, I was just this morning thinking that when Ringling was around, th this was always the start of the, the week on Long Island. And I would spend my almost every day there visiting or, again, doing projects. I handed out Ringling's Animal Open House literature to all the patrons that came through the uh, Animal Open House. And then after that, I would visit the show because I would have like uh, a pass to get into the building for my work. And as time went on, through a mutual friend, I met Joe Colosa uh, when he was in concessions on the Ringling Show. And again, you have to sort of, uh, almost it takes like one person to introduce you to some other circus personnel unless you've built up a rapport over time. So Joe and I became fast friends. Uh, I met Carmen. Uh, they weren't married yet, but she worked on the show. And as time went on, Joe would say, well, you know, come visit the show when, whenever, you know, or visit me when you visit the show. And before I knew it, he became an assistant train master. And then through that position, he said to me, well, Donald, you like the behind the scenes of the circus. Why don't you come down to the train yard where most of the public is not allowed and sort of shadow me and, and visit and I'll show you around the train yard. How and I cool. did that many times to different locations around the country. I would, I would go out and visit the Colossus. And as a sidebar, when Joe and Carmen got married, I was the best man at their wedding. Hmm. So we became very good friends. But because I was part of the circus visiting and seeing the show, even though I'm based in Long Island, uh, I'd visit them out west and down south and Chicago area. As time went on, uh, at one point, Joe and Carmen were in Chicago. And Joe, being the historian that he is, wanted to sort of show Carmen, who wasn't really that knowledgeable about American circus history, Baraboo, Wisconsin, where the Ringling Brothers grew up where their winter quarters was originally. And it was about a three hour drive from Chicago. So Carmen goes up to Chicago with Joe and they tour some of the Ringling homes. Joe then tells me when I'm visiting that, you know, he and Carmen were interested in, in buying the mansion. And would I be interested in it? Because it was a major project. Mm -hmm. I could, you know, and it was quite an undertaking. And for myself, being the circus hobbyist, circus fan, there's a national circus fan convention that meets once a year. One of the conventions was in Baraboo, early 1990 or nine, maybe 1992-1993. So I would go to many of the conventions, and it's in Baraboo. And I was excited because I was never to Baraboo. I knew all about Baraboo's history with Ringling and the other shows. So it was like perfect. Go to the convention and see a little bit about the city. We're up there doing our different events at the convention, which is two to three days usually. 
We're at Circus World Museum, we're at the Al Ringley Theater, and we're on a bus tour of some of the sites that in the community, and we passed the Al Ringling Mansion. I remember seeing it and said, so that's it. And I was like excited, the oldest brother's home. And then the tour guide says, but we can't stop because it's a private Elks Lodge, but take a look. And this, is, this was Al's home, but we can't, we can't go in. And I was like, oh, what a shame. So I sort of had a background and a love for Baraboo and knowledge of at least Al Ringling's home back in the early 90s. And then flash forward to uh, what Joe told you about 2011 or 12, we started to have an interest in, in the home about acquiring it and purchasing it. It was, uh, I think Joe says usually it's about, it was about a two-year uh, discussion with the Elks to purchase. And I was sort of kept abreast of it when I would visit the show or a phone call from Joe. And uh, then he offered the option to Donald, would you like to become an owner, you know, half owner? So I'm 50% owner of the mansion. Joe and Carmen collectively own the other 50%. And I was like, well, wow. You know, and I said, you have to give me time to think about it. This is quite a investment, quite mm-hmm. a decision to do because it wasn't just owning the home. It was typically of old homes. You have to repurpose it. None of us are really very wealthy. So you have to make the home work, you know, at work for itself. You got sure. to re- repurpose the use. And obviously, as he's told you, you know, we run tours of the mansion. Uh, we were doing weddings in the ballroom from the beginning, uh, other events. Our ultimate goal was to create a, a bed and breakfast because there's four beautiful bedrooms and there was the servants' quarters. I looked at it like, you know, this can be a very viable business. And for me, I love old homes. I love the circus. I love the history. I love antique lighting and, that, and the mansion's full of old gas, combination gas electric chandeliers that Joe is finally uh, restoring and refurbishing. And I said, I love old homes, I love Baraboo, and I always thought I would retire in Baraboo, work my plant business on Long Island, and then ultimately move to Baraboo, Wisconsin, and just be part of the circus community up there. Uh, That was just my plan from even back in 1992, when I finally uh, got to Baraboo, went to the circus uh, convention, et cetera. I said, this is a beautiful community to retire to and do something in retirement circus related. And then when um, Joe and I and Carmen finally said, you know what, let's buy this mansion and and preserve it. And I was like, this is the perfect retirement project. It was the kind of thing where uh, we need to save Al Ringling's home. There was there were there was talk about turning it into, uh, you know, like a CVS or a Walgreens. Did he tell you that part? He did say they were talking about demolishing it. Yes. And basically the community and the mayor were like, we can't lose this home. Uh, even though the Elks are looking to sell it because they needed to downsize, essentially, or cost too much for them to support it for their clubhouse. They were just like in the talks with the uh, the drug train. And then the mayor gets, gets wind of it and says to the, the Elks, you can't tear down this, this beautiful old home. This has been part of Baraboo forever. And the mayor said, who's still mayor, said, weren't you talking to those circus people? And one of the Elks members said, yes. And the mayor said, go back and talk to those circus people again, <laughs> because for a while, I guess the deal wasn't, you know, wasn't getting any momentum. Mm-hmm. So then uh, that helped again, renewing the conversations between the Elk, Elks and, and Joe and the beautiful old home and the historic nature of it. I was like, Joe, we have to do this. Next thing you know, it's like, OK, we're going to run our tours. We're going to work on the B&B. We're going to you know, do all that. It turns out with as things have evolved. I still am on Long Island running my plant business and flower shop. And Joe and Carmen, of course, have been in Baraboo since 2014, running the mansion day to day. 
And I would come visit the, you know, my, my business six times a year, roughly anywhere from two to three days to maybe five or six. And, uh, and then, of course, stay in the mansion. Mm-hmm. For me, it was like hearing some of the stories, you know, about the mansion, you know, getting beyond how beautiful the places in the stained glass. Then you start hearing about like the spirits and, and that starts filtering into my my thoughts. I'm learning about the mansion. I'm learning about the history of the mansion, the quirks of the the heating system and the needs for the restoration. And then almost always it's it's this other aspect about the home, the mansion and the spirits. For me, uh, I live in a house that's maybe uh, 60 years old. It's nothing special as far as uh, feeling as if there's any spirits here. And it's sort of a very nondescript ranch house. So it's just a basic home. Mm-hmm. But the mansion, of course, with all the beauty and the big room and the history behind the circus and the history of the home ha- had a, a special feeling about it. Not so much like with a spiritual thing at first, but then it's like you somehow felt that there's something more there. And then you you would hear from other people about their experiences. And again, it's just stuff you hear. And for myself, if you asked me, do I believe in spirits? I would have said, I'm not sure. I said, you know, anything could be possible. Uh, But I never really had any experience in my life. Now I'm at the mansion a number of times a year. I'm hearing of all these other people's experiences, uh, whether it be uh, Joe's or Carmen's or his sister's or some of the other guests that have come through, or people on the ghost tours, uh, or the psychics that have come uh, either just on a general tour and said, could I come back? This is what I do. And then you're starting to hear more of these stories, which I'm sure he's explained to you. Mm -hmm. And as far as myself, well, I haven't really experienced anything, but maybe it'll come in time. The couple cases, which actually made me a believer, and I wasn't really sure, I didn't say no, but it was like, I need proof kind of thing. One of the first ones that for me was just sleeping in uh, in what was called the red room or now the rose room. And I always wanted to make sure that I, I closed my door and making sure that it, it absolutely catches that the, the spring on the little uh, door thing catches the little closure part. And sometimes you have to be uh, cognizant of it and, you know, push a little bit or lift the doorknob up a little bit. And I know I closed the door and I could hear the little spring catch where it needed to catch and the door would be closed. And in the morning it's open <laughs> and it was only open two or three inches, but it was open. And I was extremely careful to make sure the door would be closed. Mm-hmm. And that happened a couple, I think I was there two nights or so, and it happened both nights. And I, and I said, this is very strange because I didn't casually close the door. I thought about it. I made sure I sort of tugged it a little bit and I knew enough that, to make sure the door was closed. So that was like my first thought about, well, something's, something's doing this. Okay. And that was, you know, a minor thing, but it was like, well, something's doing that. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember whether it was the, the same visit or not, hearing footsteps, almost like if somebody had shoes, not like sneakers, but shoes that would make uh, noise walking up and down steps. I heard somebody walking either up or down. I couldn't tell. But the amount of time it went step by step by step by step was somebody careful. It was almost like carefully and thinking about making sure you're getting each step. So you're not going to like tumble down the stairs. Mm -hmm. And I didn't count the number of steps, but the amount of time I heard step by step and knowing that stairwell really well, I said, 
somebody is going up or down and it sounded like it took as long as it would take the average person to go up or down, maybe 15 seconds, 12 seconds. But it was, uh, it, that was very unusual. And I asked Joe the next morning, cause I was sleeping in that the red room or the, now we call it the Rose and Joe was in the servants area. And I said, Joe, did you go downstairs for any reason during the night? And I said, maybe now on two or three in the morning. Mm-hmm. And he said, no, I never left my, my space. <laughs> and then that in itself was again, you know, you hear stories and everybody talks about different things, but that was another one that I basically witnessed with my ears. Sure. And, and I know I was awake. So I almost find myself needing proof for what you hear about when people talk about spirits and homes, knowing that it's possible, but let's have a little more um, than just hearsay. And these were two cases that basically um, made me a little more of a believer. But the one that made the most sense to me and most believable, I guess, almost scares me of sorts, because, again, it was a new experience to witness it myself was in, in Lou's bedroom. And I slept in each of those uh, bedrooms, not the servant space, but each of the four bedrooms multiple times through the since we've owned the place uh, in 2013. And I'm in Lou's room going to sleep, and I made sure that I uh, closed the door. I made sure the door between uh, Al's room and Lou's room, the sliding door between the two closets was closed. I even closed uh, Lou's closet door just because if somebody's going to go in the other room or if I'm sleeping a little later in the morning, and I just do that. The bathroom has a sliding door, and that was left you know, half open or so, and it didn't matter because the bathrooms weren't operating at that point. If I needed a ba- uh, to go to the bathroom, I had to use uh, the servant's uh, bathroom. But anyway, I'm getting ready to go to sleep, and I'm very careful because I'm in Lou's bed, and it's her original bed from either either that house or maybe one of her other homes with, of course, new mattresses. So I'm being careful, you know, when I'm, I'm get, going down to sleep and I'm wide awake and it's like, you know, thinking about the day, et cetera. And there's a little bit of light coming in from the street lights and such. And, and I'm ready to go to sleep and I'm wide awake. I see a woman and it was like, there's, a, there's somebody in my room. And I'm looking from the bathroom. And someone is like maybe a foot away from the bed and just looking at me. Oh and, I, and I looked and I said, that looks like Lou. And I don't really know exactly how tall Lou was, but I said, you know, she was wearing like a white, a white blouse and sort of like a grayish or dark color dress. And she was just like looking at me. And I looked up at her and I said to myself, I'm awake. I said, I know I'm awake. And I said, this is my first interaction like with a spirit like up close. And I said to myself, I should say something. And I honestly, Diane, I was too scared to say anything. I was, I I was awake you. and I was too scared to say something. Like, hello, Lou. Or I was just too scared to say something. There's been other times where, you know, we've, I've talked to the spirits and, you know, talked to Lou, talked to Al. But to say stuff about like, you know, I hope you like the renovations we're doing in the home. I hope you're happy with our plans for saving the mansion, whatever. But this particular time I was, I, I clammed up and I'm looking at her and it probably five seconds, 10 seconds. And it's like, I should say something, but I can't. And I'm looking at her and it's like, I'm in her bed <laughs> and I'm looking at her. And then I was so scared to speak. I basically, and I was like on my side facing her because I was sort of looking out the windows a little prior to her, her appearance. And I said, you know, I'm just going to turn over and face the door. So I just stayed, I just 
flipped over on my other side, still in the bed, and faced the other way and almost pretended to go to sleep or made the, and that was that. So that was the only time I actually felt I saw a spirit in the home and it was in her room. That's my, my stories about my personal stories and my feeling that, that they're, that they're there. I don't have any problem, uh, uh, walking downstairs when, you know, without turning any lights on, you know, that kind of thing. Like, uh, even though we were living upstairs and stuff, if I forgot something or left my coat and I left something in my coat and I left my coat, like in the dining room, I had no qualms walking down the stairs, holding the railing in the dark, mm-hmm. you know, just whatever lights come in off the street lights. But that's, uh, yeah, that's my, my personal experience with that, with the, uh, the Al Ringling Mansion. I love how you put it. I, I had, a, you know, two or three experiences. You had a holy grail experience, this full-bodied apparition. I wanted to ask you, yes. when you saw her, you were describing what she was wearing. Was she solid to you or was she slightly transparent? I would say I felt like she was more, more solid than transparent. Interesting. Um, yeah, uh, a little more solid because I couldn't see through her. But as I said, she had on this darker dress, but uh, like a blouse that was lighter. And she was um, just like looking at me and, and, and almost I want to say I won't want to say she was really, really transparent. But I would say if I had to say I would have to lean more to a little more substance. The other interesting thing is because you said that she was standing there looking at you, it makes me think that she was more intelligent. You weren't just seeing her passing through as if she was some kind of a residual haunting, just going about what she had been doing back in her time or something like that. Like she knew you were there and in her bed. Yeah, that's what exactly. Because it wasn't like there was a fast movement and then gone. And that's where I said I because I, I remember thinking I should talk to her. I should say something. And that takes like five seconds. And then she made, I don't know how long I, and that's where I said, you know what? I can't say anything. And that's where I I made the the, the decision in my head, just turn over. I chickened out and I turned over. It's, it always amazes me. I'll hear people tell stories and they'll be like, and then I just went to sleep or whatever. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they do that. But it, it seems like a lot of people, that's their reaction. It's almost like, I don't know, it's a shock to the system. And so your body's like, I'm just going to shut down and just forget this is happening. Uh, I looked at it that figuring that she wouldn't hang around for any length of time or even though I may not have spotted her other times, she could have been there. But this one time I I just noticed her and I just looked at it like, well, you know, I'm just going to, I'm sleeping in the room. I'm not going to leave. You know, maybe she spotted me and I didn't spot her other times. I just looked at it like, well, they're there and, you know, I'm sleeping in the room and we'll just leave it at that. So that's, that was all that went through my mind. And I was a little bit scared. Like I said, there she is. I'm finally getting to see her or see something. Mm-hmm. Or I felt like I'm finally seeing something that everybody else says that they see. And I finally got to experience it. I wanted to thank you for sharing your experiences. And also what I'd said to uh, Joe and Carmen is just thank you for saving this magnificent mansion so that it was not demolished because it's not just this great, beautiful mansion. It has such great history connected to the circus. I mean, I can't even imagine that if that would have been destroyed. Thank you for understanding and and appreciating that. All right. Well, you have a great evening. And again, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Have a good night. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. The Al Ringling Mansion is an amazing home, so full of history and memorabilia. Could it be that this historic home is also full of ghosts? Is the Al Ringling Mansion haunted? That That is for you to decide. decide. 
Well, I loved talking to these people. The thing that really touched me, and you heard it in both of these interviews, is I thanked them for saving this wonderful home that was going to be demolished and turned into possibly a CVS or some other drugstore on the corner. Definitely. It's so important to try to keep and restore these historic buildings and people that were intimately involved with the circus. That just makes it even more fantastic. So I'm very pleased that they did that. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. Kelly, a lot of the kids are home from school. They're getting kind of bored. You know, they can't go anyplace, the parks really or anything like that. Well, one of our little listeners, Charlotte Connor, she knows a little bit about coding. And so she had some fun and made a little app up for us. It was so cute. I posted it up in the Spooktacular crew. Yes, uh, through Bitsbox, I think. And I actually made that suggestion for other parents with young kids because, I mean, computers are so entrenched in our lives now. Why not give the kids an opportunity to learn how to code and create apps? I mean, how fun is that? Yeah, and it was so cute. It had played music and had a little ghost going across it. was adorable. That was so sweet. I got so excited when I saw it. So thank you to Charlotte for that. The other suggestion I was going to make is we are a kid-friendly show. So set up some HGB for your children. That is true. We love our young listeners. And thank you to all of you guys who've been sharing the show out there. We greatly appreciate that. Oh, definitely. It goes so far to help us grow and help us be able to do what we do. We want to thank you for joining us for this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by Kobo and our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. And we want to welcome into the cemetery Amanda Battershill. She's going to be buried under an obelisk tombstone. And Janae McCabe, you're going to be buried in a chest tomb. Thanks, ladies. Please stay well, spookies. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher. The Ringlings changed the name of their circus several times and added the John Robinson Circus to the, the Ringlings changed. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> they would manage each circus separately until World War One. They sound like I had marbles in my mouth. <laughs> it's those W's every time. <laughs> it's the wascally wallace that creep into your mouth. Al hired a. Chicago. <laughs> what city is that? Al hired a Chicago architect to build the Al Ringling. Al Ringling? I'm going through puberty. Are you going through puberty? <laughs> Good grief. Oh my God. <clears throat>